Colossians 1, and we begin in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, or excuse me, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And you may be seated so we're kind of embarking on our voyage this morning through the book of Colossians. I think this is going to be a, a super rich book for us. These four chapters, I think they're, we're going to see the, the rich theology, the rich doctrine really impacts how we live out our daily lives. And uh, I think there's, there's even in these opening verses some things that we can just kind of fly over, we can miss if we're not careful. There's a, there's a really a theme that drives the first eight verses, I think, that we... We often miss it's 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 a theme that drove the Apostle Paul. It really drove his entire ministry. It comforted him during difficult times. It encouraged him when he was down. It's a theme that really humbled him even when things were going well. It's really a theme that defined his place in ministry and in the church and really who he was in the grand scheme of things. And as we'll see, I think it defined his prayer life as well. And the theme is the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God. It's God's control over all things. And that control was all pervasive in Paul's life. It was a constant understanding. God's sovereignty never negated Paul's work, never negated his faithfulness or his effort or his responsibilities. It didn't negate his evangelism. It didn't negate his raising up leaders. Rather, it it kind of fueled it. In fact, look down to the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul toils and he struggles and he does everything to present every single person mature in Christ. But even then he's aware that the power that's working in him is not his own power. Right? It's, it's God's power in him. That's, that's that last verse. For this I toil, that maturity of all believers, struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. That's that's whose power he uses. He uses God's power. It's God's power that works in Paul. I want to show you a, a couple of these these kind of uh, not tensions, but but these dual realities of of God's sovereignty and God's sovereignly working in people as they give maximum effort. So turn back a couple pages to the left of Philippians chapter two. We see this sort of same kind of thing. In Philippians 2, 
Paul calls the Philippians to obey Paul, not just when he's there in Philippi, but also as he is absent. But, but how do they do that? How do they, how do they obey him? Look down in verse 12. Paul says in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, obey. When I was there, you obeyed. You were obedient to the spirit. He says, and, and now I'm gone and you need to continue to obey. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying, work out your salvation. Live out your salvation. Now that you're in Christ, now that you're saved, you need to live that out day by day with fear and trembling before God Almighty. How do you do it? Verse 13, recognizing for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Philippians are to live out their salvation, work out their salvation in God's power, understanding who God is, the, the enormity and the power and the judgment of God walking in fear and trembling before God. That's what he says. He says, for it is God who works in you. The only way that we or, or anyone will ever understand how to rightly live out obedience to the Lord is to understand that it is God who is working in us. He sovereignly supplies us with all the energy that we need to obey. So, so nobody can actually ever say as a believer, they can never say, well, I just can't obey God. Right? You call them to obedience or you call them to give up a sin. Nobody, if they're truly filled with the spirit, can actually say, well, I just can't do that. No, you won't do that. You might refuse to do that. But the issue is willingness. It's not ability because in Christ, he gives us everything we need to live out what he's commanded us to do. So nobody can say, I, I can't do that. Really, those who are in Christ have the choice. It's up to us. So all that to say God's sovereignty extends to every area of our lives. We, you know, we usually don't recognize that we're breathing air, just like fish don't recognize that they're surrounded by water. Right. I mean, they, they don't notice it. Why? Because it's all pervasive. It's everywhere. Someone once said that, that God is doing like 10,000 things around us and we might recognize like three of them. Right. But but all around us, our whole lives, every breath we take, everything. Is governed by God. In fact, you don't have to turn there. Romans 1136 says for from him and through him and to him are some things. No, are all things. Absolutely every single thing is from God and it is through God. And ultimately it will be to his glory, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That, that encompasses everything. See, in the, in the Bible, God's sovereignty is not just some sort of intellectual thing to kind of argue about. God's sovereignty is not this intangible kind of thing, pie in the sky that, you know, we just find verses and, oh, yeah, see, he's sovereign. No, in the Bible, God's sovereignty is a concrete reality that the people of God are to anchor themselves in. It gives us comfort. It gives us joy. It gives us hope. It gives us grace and encouragement. And that's really what it did in Paul's life. And I want to show you what 
what Paul does with God's sovereignty here in the book of Colossians. So turn back to Colossians 1, and and I want to show you that it affects his identity. Number one, that's who he is. And number two, it affects his prayer life. So it affects his identity in verses 1 and 2, and it affects his prayer life in verses 3 through 8. So let's look at first at how God's sovereignty affects our identity. How does it affect who we are and how we view ourselves in the grand scheme of things in the world? Again, we often fly right through these sections, but I want you to notice how Paul describes himself and how he describes others in light of God's sovereignty. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of of God and Timothy, our brother. So these are the two men who are writing the scripture. And then he goes on, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. So there's a sense in which this is a pretty standard Roman greeting, pretty standard letter um, opening. The, the Romans would start off with who's writing it or the group of people who are writing it, who they're writing to in a small greeting, a well-wishing of some kind. But what we have to notice is that Paul himself defined himself completely by the work of God. His place, his office, everything about him was defined by the will of God. His apostleship, his calling, his salvation had nothing to do with his own plan. In fact, you remember back in Acts chapter 9, Paul was on the road to Damascus, right? He was going from Jerusalem to Damascus. He was going to jail Christians there. He had every intent to drag them back to Jerusalem, to try them, to throw them in jail, maybe even kill them. He'd already been there approving of the stoning of Stephen when Stephen was put to death. But he but he realized that Christ had sovereignly saved him. It was not his plan, right? But it was God's plan. It was God's plan to save him. And I want to I want to just read you some of these things. If you've got a, a little note handout, these verses are all in the back. But this is this theme of of God's will was absolutely pervasive in Paul's life. It was all over the place. In fact, nine out of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, he references the will of God in some capacity in the opening. This, this is just who he is. So, so just jot these down if you want to. So Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says he is a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's a slave. He was called and he was set apart. That was all God's doing. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1. here's an interesting thing. Not as, only does he say how he was an apostle, he says how he was not made an apostle. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1. an apostle not from men nor through man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. No man laid hands on Paul and said, you're now an apostle. Did never happen. No, it was Christ Jesus himself who called Paul to be an apostle. Ephesians 1, an apostle by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1, he's an apostle by command of God, is what he says. It wasn't just that God desired this. No, this is a command of God. Paul, you are now an apostle by my decree, by command of God. Titus 1.3, Paul was an apostle who preached the gospel because he was entrusted to do that by the command of God. Of God our Savior. Again, nine out of 13 of his letters, the opening 
is a recognition of what God had sovereignly done in his life. Now, on the one hand, I think we could maybe say, well, you know, Paul was says maybe he was just acknowledging, hey, you know, I didn't do this. God did this. So everything that I'm going to say, you know, that's really just from God. I don't have, you know, it, this isn't me who's telling you these hard truths. This is just God through me. Um, if any of you have been in kind of like middle management sort of situations where, you know, you've got the upper management and they tell you to, you know, this is how you have to organize your your uh, your group and you've got people below you, you're kind of like, well, you know, I. I didn't decide this. You know, the, the upper ups, they decided that I'm just, I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you this, right? I think there might have been some of that where, where Paul is deferring ultimate authority to Christ, ultimate authority to God. Hey, I'm, I'm an apostle. I'm just faithfully bringing along this message. I think there's some of that. But I think there's more than that. Because Paul could have just said, hey, this is, you guys, you got to listen because this is what the Spirit said. This is what God said. Tough luck. You know, this is, this is how you got to live. Why bring in who he is? Because this is very personal to Paul. God's, God's will, God's sovereignty was not this arbitrary, abstract thing that, that he argued about. No, it was a very personal thing. God brought him into the kingdom through his own sovereign decree, through his own sovereign command. And we need to recognize this as well. We who are in Christ and where we're at in life is because of the will of God. Our identity is not primarily in our last name. It's not primarily in our job or who you are in your family or what you do with school. If you are a believer, your identity is primarily in Christ because God has brought you in through his own will. That's what God has done. Our identity and our conduct is as sons of daughters of the king by God's sovereign decree. Here's the next way that God's sovereignty affects our identity. And I kind of touched on it, but it brings us into God's family. It brings us into God's family. Look at this in verse one. He says, and Timothy, our, our brother. And then in verse two, he says to the saints and faithful brothers, right? That's family term is what it is. Twice. Paul refers to believers as brothers, one says Timothy is a brother, and then he addresses it to the others. You ever been to church in the South? Yeah. Right? What do they call each other all the time? Sister and brother. Sister and brother. Yeah. In fact, uh, some of you guys know Justin Peters. He has a, a great ministry against the false gospel of health and wealth. And he's got this great Southern accent. I think he's from like Alabama or Mississippi or something like that. And I was talking to him the other day on the phone. And, you know, hey, brother, how's it going? I mean, it just kind of flows out. And, uh, and I always thought, well, that's just kind of a Southern thing. That's, that's a little weird. When we lived in Kentucky, everybody called each other brother in church. Um, but what we see is, is actually this, this constant theme throughout the Bible to refer to one another as brothers. In fact, I was, I was doing a little research on this, on this term brother. Uh, for many years, I believe that the most common term for a believer in the New Testament was slave. I had read that and I did some research and it seemed like slave was a very common theme. It turns out that that's not true. In fact, it's not even close. The, the most common term for a believer in the New Testament that I can find, so I've been wrong before, so I've got to be careful, is brother. Like, hands down. Just in the book of Acts alone, the term brother is used 57 times. And I think 54 of those times, it refers to believers. That's just in the book of Acts. The, the word is used by Paul 136 times in all of his writings. And most of the times it's to believers. 
And by the way, in, in these kind of situations, there's a little bit of flexibility with the Greek. When he says brothers, it encompasses ladies too. I think the NAS and maybe the New King James Version will often say brethren. And I like that idea. We're all family, brothers and sisters. That's the idea. We're a big family in Christ. In fact, there's, there's other places too. James uses it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Right? He's talking about brothers and their conduct amongst the family. So if you are a Christian, God has sovereignly brought you into his family. He's given you new, new birth. He has begotten you. Right? That's what the Bible says. He's begotten you. He's adopted you. He's given you an inheritance. He's made you his son. Those are all family terms. He has brought you in. And the bottom line for us is that God has brought us into his family as brothers. And how we treat each other, you guys needs to be his family, needs to be his brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, maybe we don't treat each other like my family, (laughs) right? My family doesn't get along so well or, or whatever the case might be. But actually, we need to understand that as family, it's all the more important that we treat each other like true family should be treated, that we sacrifice for one another. When we have disagreements, when people hurt each other, at the end of the day, we need to remember that we are the family of God. We are bought by Christ. We are brothers. We are sisters. And we should act like it in humility. The third way Paul describes our identity here is being sovereignly affected as our being saints. Verse 2, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we touched on this exact same issue last week in the book of Jude, but believers throughout the Bible are called saints. We are holy ones, hagias in the Greek. Paul isn't making a distinction between the saints and faithful brothers. No, he's saying the saints and the faithful brothers is all one group together. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. God looks at you as holy. He looks at you as though not only are your sins gone, but righteousness has been applied to your account. And of course, we are still sinful. We're still working on sanctification. But from God's perspective, our position in Christ is as saints. So how you become a brother, how you become a saint is that you are in Christ. You have faith in Christ. That's what happens. So Paul addresses this to the saints, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And then he has this sort of prayer wish, grace to you and peace from God our father. Now, the second part is his faithfulness or excuse me, his thankfulness, right? This is his prayer of thanks in verses three through eight. Now, before I dive in, I don't want to lose the emphasis of the section, which is Paul's thankfulness to God for for what has happened. But he he starts by by saying thanks and then he kind of ends it with with Epaphroditus, who is sort of the missionary pastor to Colossae. It seems like Epaphroditus or Epaphras here, he learned the gospel from Paul. He went back to his hometown of Colossae. He preached the gospel, started a church, and then he went back to Paul to kind of report to Paul what was going on. And somehow while he was back talking with Paul in Rome, it seems like he got put in prison. We don't know why, but but in another letter, Paul refers to Epaphras as his fellow prisoner. So so Epaphras, the missionary pastor to Colossae, is, is actually in jail, and they're sending some other folks back to Colossae with a report. So I, I think it's just kind of helpful to note sort of the background to, to who Epaphras is as we sort of launch in here. 
So here we see that God's sovereignty affects Paul's thankfulness. So look at verses 3, and we'll read through the first half of 5. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, we see a lot about Paul being thankful here, but we don't see a lot about God being sovereign here. But let me ask you, why, why do you thank somebody for something? It's because they've given it to you. They are the ones who have provided it. They are the ones who have done it. Right? In fact, you, you don't thank somebody who, who hasn't given you something. That would be kind of weird. Thank you for this gift that you gave me. I didn't give you a gift. Well, why would you thank them for it, right? You are thanking them for things. And here we see that, that Paul is, is thanking, um, thanking the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for them. And specifically in verse 4, we see that it is for two things, for their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So this is who Paul thanks. He thanks God and he thanks him for these two things. So the first is for their faith in Christ Jesus. He thanks God for their faith because why? Because God gave them their very faith in Christ. Why would he thank the Father for their faith if he, the Father didn't give that to them? So Paul thanks the Father for that. Their faith is a gift from God. You can jot this down. This is kind of interesting. Philippians 1.29 Paul says to the Philippians, for it has been granted to you, it's been given to you as a gift for Christ's sake that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So it is the gift of God that we have faith in Christ. There's a place in Acts chapter 11 where the Jewish believers praise God. Why do they praise God? Because the Gentile believers were filled with the spirit. And they say when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. God has given them this gift. He's given them repentance. He's given them faith. It is God who gives us eternal life and it is God who empowers us also, secondly, to love one another. Paul thanks God for their love. Again, why would you thank God for the love that people have for one another? Well, who's empowering that love? Again, it's God. When, when you see people sacrificially loving one another, laying down their lives, giving up things that are precious for them, for the good of the body, that can only be a work of the Spirit in their life. That can only be a work of the Spirit in their life. We looked at those verses earlier that says that God works in us and we work by God's power. So in no sense can we say that it's by our own power. We can't say that that's us. I'm reading a book right now with a few guys on prayer. Uh, the book is called The Praying Life by Paul Miller. So far, it's very, very good. It's been uh, very encouraging to spur on my own prayer life. Might encourage you guys to it as well. One of the things that we were reading through that he brought up this last week is that they all true prayer to God stems from an attitude of helplessness and desperation, right? When, when you think that you can do things in your own power, you don't need to ask for help. You don't need to go to God, right? 
In fact, if you do go to God and it's not out of desperation or your own helplessness, basically you're just kind of going through the motions, aren't you? But when you're at the lowest place in your life and you realize you really can't do anything, you really can't change anything, you really need God to do everything, you're in that helpless state and that's when you cry out to God. And that's really what we see here is that our ability to love one another it has to stem from an act of helplessness. See, it's easy to love one another when everything's going fine. It's when things are really, really difficult and really, really strained and really, really tough. And you're doing your best effort and it seems to get worse and worse and worse. That we need to cry out to God to help to love one another. Empower us for that and thank God when we have that ability. God calls us to radical, self-sacrificial love that the world looks at and goes, that's kind of foolish what you're doing. That is spirit-empowered love. Now, why would someone trust in Christ? And why would anyone sacrifice for one another in this radical way? Well, Paul answers that in the rest of verse 5. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse six, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he says, you, you believe these things. And in verse five, he, he grounds it squarely. Actually, at the beginning, we didn't read that because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is why people place their faith in Christ. This is why people radically love one another is because there is a hope. There's a greater hope laid up for us in heaven. We understand that, yes, our our sins are washed away. We understand that there is a, a hope of eternal glory. There is joy and happiness in the presence of Jesus. And because there is that waiting for us, everything in the meantime is small potatoes. Eternally speaking, it's small potatoes. When that is waiting for us, you know, following Jesus just isn't all about escaping hell, though we get that. It's not just about doing good things, though we want to do that. Ultimately, following Jesus is about remembering that there is a hope waiting for us in heaven. One day Jesus is coming back. He will bring that hope and make our faith sight. And in the meantime, we can do all things through his power. That's what that's about. And that hope changes people. He says it's it's bearing fruit, verse 6, in the whole world, and it's increasing as it does among you. When, when people hear the gospel message, you guys, it changes them. When they hear about the hope that there is in Christ Jesus, when they hear that, yes, their sins are forgiven, but there is a greater joy, there is a greater reality waiting for them, it changes them. It doesn't change every single person. Some people reject it. I understand that. But the gospel message will thrive. It continually flourishes even in the darkest times, even in the darkest situations. I was, I was reading a book, um, Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. And there's this section that is just always amazing to me that, that when, when Russia and the Soviets had the Iron Curtain up, people in the West kind of looked over there and just thought that that is just a spiritual no man's land. It is dead. And when the Iron Curtain lifted... What they found out was there was this massive, thriving church all through communist Russia. There's no government that can put down the gospel message. They might be able to put down the free expression of it, but the gospel message still spreads. It still grows. It still bears fruit, even under the harshest 
circumstances. In fact, it often bears more fruit in the harshest circumstances than it does in comfort and ease. Because people realize what's really on the line here. It separates the sheep from the goats when it's your life is on the line. Do you really believe this? That's the gospel message. Same thing happens today in China. In North Korea, there's a church. Did you know that according to some estimates, Iran is the fastest growing Christian church in the world? Iran. Of all places. Why? Because you can only push down hope and the gospel so much before it just absolutely flourishes. The gospel takes hope. So we've seen God's sovereignty, how it changes our identity. We've seen how his provision is the means by which it gives thanks. But I want to leave us with the ever-present reminder about our responsibility. God does work and he works sovereignly. But true gospel work is always done with faithful people. Right? We can never just go, yeah, well, God's going to take care of it. God's going to handle it all. No, we are called to it. Look at Epaphras. Look how he is described. Verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it, this gospel of truth, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. How did the Colossians hear the gospel? It's from Epaphras. They learned it from him, which means he had to invest time and he had to invest energy in people. He had to invest resources to teach them. And it's interesting, he's called two things, which I think are telling of any gospel ministry that any of us would take part in. First, he's called a fellow servant. Literally, he's a fellow slave. True gospel ministry, you guys, is always a ministry of service to others. You can't get around that. Right. When you are truly ministering the gospel, it is two people one way or another. Even if you're vacuuming the church, you're making bulletins, you're doing what you are serving people. That's the bottom line. It's telling the truth and it's never easy and it's never convenient. It always takes dedication and it always takes sacrifice of some kind, which is why he's called a servant. And he's also called a faithful minister. Paul calls him a faithful minister. Uh, a minister is someone who gives something out. That's what a minister does. They, they, they partition out to people. So what was Epaphras giving out? What was he dispensing? He was dispensing biblical truth to the Colossians. That's what he was doing. He was dispensing the word of God in a faithful, man, in a faithful manner. Yeah, he was a servant, but he was also a minister giving out truth. And so whatever ministry God has called to you in life, make sure that you are found faithful in it, that you are faithful. It is better to be faithful a few things in your life than unfaithful with a whole bunch of things. It's one of the things in our culture is we need to be doing a million things and we're bad at all of it. No, what Jesus calls us to is be faithful with a few things and be really good at it. That's what he wants. You remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? One guy got one talent and he wasted it. One guy got two talents and that's all he could do. But he did it faithfully. And Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. Same thing with the guy with five. Some of you have five. Some of you have two. Some of you have one. Whatever it is you have, however it is you minister to other people and serve other people, whatever you do, do it well. Be a faithful minister knowing that your work will bring glory to our sovereign God. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
for the ministry that you've entrusted us with. We thank you that you have sovereignly called us into your kingdom. You've called us into your family. You've given us inheritance and riches. Lord, it's all you. It's not by our own doing, not by our own wisdom. And we just praise you and thank you for that. Lord, may we faithfully discharge the responsibilities that you've given us in life to your glory, we pray. Amen.